If you've got a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a weighty chapter. There are a couple of chapters in Corinthians that are, uh, make preachers quite nervous to deal with, and, and this passage would be one of those. Um, what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is six rhetorical questions. So that's quite easy to, to remember. Six rhetorical questions, each beginning with, do you not know? Do you not know? Now, the first half of chapter 6 there were some issues inside the church, and they were trying to deal with these issues externally. There were some conflicts in the church. There was internal conflict, and then they were going to external mediators. They were wanting to sue one another, and so the internal issues were being taken outside, and Paul says, no, you don't need to do that. These are not crimes. If it was a crime, you go to the police. If it's a conflict, you deal with it internally. Do you not know that, he says? And then his argument shifts slightly. It's the same questions, do you not know? But now there are internal sins in the church and they are wanting to keep it quiet. And Paul says, no, do you not know that when it comes to internal sin in the church, we are to deal with it publicly? And so it's quite a difficult passage. It's a weighty passage. And so let's consider, firstly, we're just going to be in the second half of chapter 6. Let's consider some of these questions. The three questions go like this in verse 15. We will read the whole text shortly. Do you not know, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Clearly, this church has forgotten something. The question demands that conclusion. Do you not know this is gospel amnesia of sorts? This is a gospel forgetfulness. They have forgotten that the gospel actually leads to a transformed life. Do you not know, Paul says. Paul wants to press this question on them. And part of the issue in the Corinthian church was that they were still living like Corinthians. They had failed to transition. The church in Corinth was still living like the Corinth culture. The church was in Corinth, but too much of Corinth was still in the church. And so Paul wants to address this, and he wants to speak to the, the, the Christian view of the body, contrasting that with the Corinthian view of the body. And so let's read his whole argument starting in verse 9. And what we find here is some rich truths that shape our view of believers and their bodies. How should we conduct our lives in these bodies that we have been blessed with? So from verse nine, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. So firstly, I would like to consider the Corinthian view, the Corinthian view of the body. And Paul helps us to understand the Corinthian context, at least the way they were viewing the body, by quoting some phrases that the Corinthians were fond of. They, they would justify their actions. They would justify going to the temples, going to these pagan places, uh, and even laying down their lives on the altar by sleeping with prostitutes. And so Paul wants to engage with their argument. And so he quotes in verse 12, he says it twice, and notice it's in quotation marks, and it's most commentators agree that Paul is quoting a Corinthian saying, and the saying is this, all things are lawful for me, they were saying. This is what they said, and it sounds very Pauline, doesn't it? And in fact, it would have been leveraged from when Paul planted this church. It would have been the echoes of Paul's teachings. It was something that Paul used to teach, but they were clearly distorting Paul's theological view of grace and freedom from law. They were using this as an argument to say nothing now is out of bounds. We've been liberated the saying, yes, it's expressing some truth, but not all the truth. In Christ, yes, we are free. We are fully justified, saved by grace alone. But this was an abuse of Christian liberty. The Corinthians were taking hold of something Paul would have taught amongst them and using it as an excuse for self-centered licentiousness pushing the grace of God to, to places where it was never meant to go. And so their argument was all things, including, in brackets, sleeping with prostitutes, are lawful for me. And Paul rebuts that. Paul comes back with a quick reply. And he says, but not everything is helpful. You say all things are, are lawful. He says, yes, you're kind of getting it, but, 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 but before you go there, not everything is helpful. And then when, they, when he quotes it again, he says, and probably what you're doing is enslaving. It's going to dominate you. And that's not true freedom. That's not true freedom. The, the claim that everything is lawful, in other words, I can live as I now please, really falls apart when we realize the consequences that come home to roost. And this idea of, or, or picture of, of absolute freedom actually is binding. It's not helpful, he says. Because that's not the Christian view of freedom. And actually what happens is it enslaves you. It dominates you. And so we know that sexual sin neither is helpful 
that leads to often brokenness, it leads to enslavement, it leads to relational pain and heartache. It leads to family brokenness, it leads to disillusionment. And so Paul's arguing your, your view of freedom is flawed. That's the first thing we note. The, the second quote that he goes to is in verse 13. Have a look there with me. He says their food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Again, he's quoting the Corinthian saying. The Corinthian saying the food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, what he's arguing here is that they were thinking, well, just like hunger is a bodily appetite, then... So what happens when you're hungry? When you're hungry, you eat. You, you respond to the body appetite. You indulge in what the body is saying to you. And he says, in other words, that's the way you're viewing sexuality. It's just a bodily appetite. And if the bodily appetite is sending certain impulses, then what we do is we engage because now we're free. It's all just biological, they said. It's all just bodily impulses. And Paul wants to expose that. This is, this is not the Christian worldview. This is, they've, they've kind of adopted maybe a Greek worldview, a, a Greek philosophical understanding of the body. You know, maybe they thought the body was simply a prison that housed the soul. Or in some ancient cultures, it was the, maybe the opposite, where the body needed to be treated harshly in order to subdue the body, you know, embrace affliction. And the harsher the treatment of the body, the freer of the soul would be. Or whatever view it was, their view was the body doesn't matter and therefore indulge. If bodily appetites, they would argue, are indifferent, if bodily appetites are indifferent and irrelevant, then who cares? If you're hungry, eat, and if you desire sex with whomever you please, then indulge. How? How then did the Corinthians lose their way so easily? And we could argue that it was simply Influence. It was simply cultural pressures. The cultural pressures start to mount and, and compromise begins to seep in and creep in. This, remember, is a church that Paul pioneered and planted and he was amongst them for 18 months. But now he's been away and sin has crept back in. The culture of Corinth has seeped back into the church and, and it's quite simple that sin often gets overlooked Cultural influence, cultural pressure, sin is at first overlooked and then maybe it's simply tolerated. You know, it's okay, we can, we can accept it and, and eventually it's not only tolerated, it's then tasted. And then often after it's been tasted, it's affirmed. And then sadly, it's celebrated. And it seems that this is what has happened in the Corinthian church. We called the series Lessons from a Messy Church. And it certainly was a messy church. The same cultural problem is speaking into our own cultural moment, isn't it? So what's the answer? Well, the answer is Paul's going to give us some wonderful truth regarding the Christian view. So we're going to contrast the Corinthian view. The body is just simply an appetite. Indulge, do as you please, versus the Christian view. Let's consider the Christian view. And before we do that, I just want to say that I think that what Paul has to say here has far-reaching implications beyond just sexual appetites. It, it really does speak into body insecurities, into body image 
realities where, where we really struggle as a people today with the pressures of our culture, the stereotypes. Some people are, are really tormented by the pressures and, and, and stereotypes of what beauty and, and, and looks like, and we come under immense pressure and anxiety as a people. Advertising and marketing portrays to us certain narratives that in order to be happy, in order to fit in, we've got to look and feel a certain way about ourselves. And so I think what Paul's going to say here is, is a corrective, but also a wonderful instructive to shape our thinking on how should we view our bodies, the human body. The first thing he wants to share is in verse 13 and 14, and that is this, your body is for the Lord. This is quite simple, but here it is, verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, here he says it, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. It's very simple, but it's profound. Your body is for the Lord. In other words, your body the one that God's given you, the one that God's graced you with, the one that you maybe think, well, this part I don't like and this part I wish was another way or maybe I had this color eye or this kind of hair or this color skin or whatever it might be. I want to say to you that God says to you, your body, the body that you have is for the Lord. With all of its frailty, with all of its inadequacies, with all of its imperfections, your mouth, your eyes, your hands, your feet are designed to glorify God. It's not just your spirit that's for the Lord. It's not just your mind that's for the Lord. It's your body. Your body is for the Lord. God has graced you and gifted you with a body, and you are to present your bodies, Romans 12 verse 1, present your bodies to the Lord. Not just your worship with your spirit, not just your mind, not just your affections, but your body matters to God. Amen? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Some of us have a hard time believing this because we think that faith should simply be spiritual. Faith should simply be an abstractly spiritual reality. But Paul is insisting here that our bodies matter to God. In fact, he goes on to claim that it's so important that the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on a body. He took on a body. Not only is your body for the Lord, but the Lord is for the body. Our bodies matter. Jesus took on flesh. And the, the point is that our bodies matter both in life because Jesus took on flesh and in death. Notice what he says in verse 14. And God raised the Lord. Why? Because he died and will also raise us up in power. That's how important our bodies are in life and in death. God who raised Christ. In other words, your body's not just a shell. Your body matters, and we are called upon to worship the Lord, serve the Lord, obey the Lord, follow the Lord with our bodies. What you do with your hands, what you do with your eyes, what you do with your mouth, your legs, your whole body matters. And if you are a Christian, your body will be raised with Christ, like Christ. We will have glorified bodies and we will worship him for all eternity in a new heaven and a new earth in bodies. We know the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, 
both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So his first argument is your body is for the Lord. Secondly, he reminds us with a do you not know statement that your body is united with Christ. Not only is this body made for the glory of God, but we are actually united with Christ. Do you not know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then, he has his argument, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Just allow that to sink in for a minute, church. Your bodies are members, not just your soul, not just your spirit, not just your mind, not just the spiritual body, not just your faith, but your body is united to Christ. The Puritans would speak of the mystical union of the believer to Christ. That somehow we are joined to Christ, yes, spiritually, but somehow mystically we are united as members of one another and to Christ. So the, the implication is profound. The implication is this. Therefore, there is no such thing as casual behavior, or let me be more blunt, casual sex, or casual actions with our bodies. You know, casual sex, it's not casual. It's, as a believer, it's profoundly important. It's profoundly spiritual. It's profoundly powerful. It's not just a soul tie. It's a body engaging. And Paul argues from Genesis. He quotes Genesis chapter 2 here in verse 16. He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes what? One body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. In other words, he's saying sex for Christians, it's, it's designed by God to forge the most profound bond between one man and one woman for life within the covenant of marriage. The body is important. And so his point is, how then, Corinthian church, how then can you just casually take Christ with you into the bedroom, outside of the bonds of marriage? Sexual sin for Paul and for the Lord is a profoundly dishonoring thing to the Lord Jesus. Because your body is a member of Christ. Thirdly, your body is a sacred temple. This one we know fairly well, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Again, the Christian body is the dwelling place of the Spirit of the living God. Again, not just your heart. Not just your mind, not just your soul, but your entire being. And, and this means that our bodies are sacred spaces. How we live, how we behave, how we act, what we do with our bodies matters to God. And this should radically shape how we think about ourselves. What we consume, what we watch, what we listen to. Now, we don't want to get all fundamentalistic. We don't want to go legalistic. That was for the 80s, right? No, I'm just kidding. We, we do need to honor the Lord, though, with our eyes and what we allow in and what we hear and what we watch. And maybe we just need a fresh reminder of, of, of all that's out there that is invasive and disturbing. 
that influences us. Verse 19 and 20, we read on, it says, you are not your own. As a believer, you are now the temple. Your body is a sacred space. You are not your own. Verse 20, for you were bought with a price. Conclusion, so glorify God. Where? In your body. In your body. This, this truth here, you are not your own, really does cut across the ideology of personal autonomy, doesn't it? The thing we, we love today in our culture, you know, I'm the self-made, self-made man, this, I can be whatever I want to be. The word of God says, no, you're not. You're not your own. You belong. You, you have a body and it is a sacred temple. You've been bought we are not free to invent ourselves. We are not free to define ourselves. We belong to Jesus, both in body and in soul, both in life and in death. Now, let me bring this to its beautiful conclusion because it is a weighty passage. And we need to acknowledge here that this this view of the body wasn't always the case. We know that from the earlier verses. This wasn't always the situation. The Corinthians lived as they pleased. They were doing as they were pleasing. They were living out their lives however they wanted. They were indulging their bodily desires. And their bodies were glorifying themselves. But then something changed. Something radically changed. And look at how Paul explains it. We're going to read these verses again in verse 9, and then I want to highlight verse 11. He says, Do you not know in verse 9 that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is how the Corinthians were living. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, is there any hope? Notice how he blends these. He doesn't highlight one sin above another. But is there any hope? And then the resounding answer is verse 11. And such were some of you. This is incredible. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What an amazing statement. What a profound conversion testimony. And such were some of you. In other words, the church at Corinth was made up of radically corrupt and converted people. In fact, all of our churches are. My church, your church, any true church is made up of people who were like that. And such were some of you. I love what he does here. He doesn't try and minimize sin. He doesn't try and cover up for sin. He lists it, doesn't he? He doesn't rank it, no, because we're not meant to do that. That's okay. We know that there are varying consequences for various sins. But he states it plainly and simply. Why? Because he wants to magnify the price. You've been bought. You've been rescued. You've been washed, he says. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Such were some of you. Every church is made up of sinners who've been converted. If we minimize sin, hear me, church, if we minimize sin, we inevitably minimize the cross. If the church tries to take away people's sin, 
then we keep God from being able to take it. May we never minimize sin and inevitably minimize the price. Such were some of you. When we get to heaven, this will be the anthem. We were bought because I once was like this. And now I've been saved, I've been washed, I've been sanctified, I've been justified. Let me conclude, just two, two practical conclusions. I find this passage incredibly helpful because we can be clear about sin. We don't want to magnify sin. We don't, we don't want to elevate ourselves. We don't want to look down on others. We don't want to judge others. But we do want to be clear, right, about what God isn't pleased with. And verse 9 and 10, it says at 12, the, this kind of behavior, this kind of lifestyle will end in those people not inheriting the kingdom of God. And that should burden us. That should weigh heavy on us. That should cause us to cry out in prayer and petition and, and in lifestyle and move us towards those people, not away from those people. Amen? Because such were some of us. So we can be clear about sin. We can know exactly what pleases God and what doesn't please God. And then we can accurately glorify God in our bodies. We must not forget that the center of Christianity is the cross, which says that we've been rescued from sin. If we, again, if we minimize sin, we minimize the cross. The very thing we've been saved from, the price that was paid. And then secondly, not only can we be clear about sin, but we can be confident about grace. We can be confident about the grace of God. Some of you are wondering, is there any hope for me? Because in that list, I qualify, I'm in that list. But what we see here is that heaven is full of people who once were. And such were some of you. But you've been bought. God loves, this is the gospel, God loves to take sinners and wash them, walk with them, journey with them, and wash them and clean them and make them his own. So that we can stand together and praise our God and say, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was this, and now I'm that. I want to close just with a quick illustration. There's a story, and I think it took place in Southampton on the docks. And the story goes of a father who would take his young boy down to the docks, and they would watch these big boats sail off into the distance. And they had a kind of unique uh, moment every time they would go down to the water's edge. And this little boy loved to watch this, the boat sail off into the distance. And one day his dad brought home a big piece of hard wood. And together what they would do is they would carve out a sailboat. Eventually, after months and months of hard labor, they created this beautiful um, wooden sailboat. And they would go down then to the docks and they would sail it. And the story goes that one day the boat actually took off. And the wind turned and the boat went off into the distance, never to be seen again. And the little boy ran home and bawled his eyes out. And, uh, and eventually he kind of came to terms with what had happened. His beloved boat had sailed off into the distance. And uh, the story goes, a few months later they were walking through the high street and in one of the windows... He saw his boat. His boat was there in the window. And so he ran into the shop and he said, listen, that's my boat. Can I please have my boat? And the shop owner said, no, no. Well, it's, it's, it's going to cost you a pound 50. 
And, uh, and so he was disturbed. He was like, but that's my boat. And the shop owner said, yeah, it, it, it can be for one pound 50. And so he went out and, he was, and his dad said, no, don't worry. We're going to you know, do some extra chores around the house. And so he would get 20p for that, 20p. And eventually he saved up the money a few weeks later. And he went with his dad to the shop and he put the money on the table. And he got his beloved boat. And he took his boat in his arms and he said, now you are twice mine. First I made you and now I bought you. And Jesus wants to say that to you this morning. In verse 19 and 20, you were bought with a price. As such were some of you, some of you, some of your friends. But the price is enough. Jesus laid down his life. He made you and he wants to buy you. If you haven't yet been bought, surrender your life to Christ. And allow him to take you. So that you can glorify God, not yourself. We're tired of that, aren't we? As a people, as a generation of glorifying ourselves with our bodies. No, no, let's come under the Lordship of Christ and glorify him with our bodies.